1: So, if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S.
2: From KQED.
1: I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. Out past the single family homes and vacant lots and industrial warehouses down 16th Street West in Oakland, there's a building that holds a lot of history. It's a massive 40 foot high stone structure covered in terracotta tiles. It's Oakland's 16th Street Station. The building has been left to decay over time, but it's worth remembering its rich history, including its role in the modern civil rights movement. Our friends at the Bay Curious podcast dug into this rich history, and today we're going to share an episode of their show with you right after this break.
3: a part of this amazing community visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today that's podcasts with an s thank you for listening and thank you for your support
2: big curious listener tad williams often finds himself traveling on the 880 freeway in west oakland and there's this building that's visible from the road that he's always wondered about
4: It seemed like such a beautiful structure. I guess that was the first thing that kind of
2: caught my eye. It looks like a train station, but there are no train tracks connected to it. It's an impressive building in the Beaux-Arts style that looks stately and European. The front is dominated by three grand arched windows positioned over the entrance. Everything is very symmetrical. But the outside is routinely covered with graffiti. And this place is surrounded by a perimeter of chain link fencing, because it's been abandoned for more than three decades. Tad wanted to know why.
4: It's something I've always seen from the freeway,
2: and I just wanted to understand more about its background, its history, its purpose. Reporter Azul Dolstrom Ekman found that for many coming to California, it was the end of the line. The opening scene in your next chapter.
5: Oakland was a, a golden doorway into
4: a new life. This is Alan Laird. He was born in Oakland, but before he was born, his father made the journey from Mississippi to California. And
5: leaving the South uh, with brown paper bags and, and baskets worth of fried chicken and things just to make the journey, and chairs, chair cars that would not give sometimes, and your back would ache and you rock. And, and you're thinking all the time about making it to that place.
4: It was an opportunity to start a life away from the Jim Crow South.
5: When the doors opened up, the engine let off its last blast of steam. <sighs> you almost hear a sigh of relief, like hope is here. We made it on time. We made it all the way through that. And now
4: we are at home,
5: a new home.
4: For many people the first steps of this new life would be into the 16th Street Station.
5: And they stop and pause for a minute getting off the train, gazing around, not knowing what to expect beyond those uh, highly polished brass uh, plated doors.
4: Laird's father worked as a cook on the Southern Pacific Railroad. So Laird was there a lot in the 50s when he was a boy.
5: I remember the smell of the hot dogs and the hot peanuts and things from and from the, the little snack shot there that had all the books that you could buy to read. And.
4: He says the marble floors were so polished, you could see the reflection of the chandeliers when you looked down.
5: So I had a love affair with that station.
4: It was built in 1912, during the golden age of rail travel. For decades, the station was as busy as an airport is today. There would be dozens of long-distance trains arriving every day.
5: Now on train number track twenty-two, uh, uh, that Shasta daylight coming in now arriving, and uh, and uh, depending on what train my father was on, you know, it was extra
6: exciting. It was the grandest railroad station ever designed in the San Francisco Bay Area. That includes San Francisco, Oakland, and all the cities around. This was the big station. That's Mitchell Schwarzer, professor
4: and author of the book Hellatown: Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. He says that the station was also home to a huge network of local trains and streetcars. There would
6: have been hundreds, 500 or more electric uh, interurban trains arriving from various parts of the East Bay there would have been about 200 streetcars arriving and departing every day as well. Before the Bay Bridge was built, you could take a
4: train from the 16th Street station to something called the Mole. Essentially, a pier that took trains out into the Bay, to a terminal where people transferred to a ferry to get to San Francisco. Later, for about five years, you could even take a train across the lower deck of the Bay Bridge into San Francisco. In the decades after the station was built, throughout the early 1900s, you'd see all sorts of trains. But the most luxurious were Pullman Palace cars. By day or by night, Pullman offers complete rest and relaxation, cleanliness, safety, and
5: comfortable transportation for the American public.
4: These trains were luxury sleeping cars, like hotels on wheels, designed for wealthy people to make the long, transcontinental railroad trip in comfort. Imagine well-to-do travelers sitting on plush seats, chandeliers hanging from ceilings, windows with silk curtains and dark walnut woodwork.
5: It takes a great army of men and women to maintain Pullman standards. The yards and shops, storerooms, and offices
3: work smoothly, day and night.
4: It was an operation. Pullman employed maids, waiters, and cooks to provide top-quality service, but the porters were the most renowned part of the operation. An electric bell
0: with which to summon the porter at any hour.
4: They would carry luggage, shine shoes, and basically wait on passengers every need. Porter. Porter. And the Pullman Palace Car Company almost exclusively
6: hired black men for these jobs. So there was that kind of racist idea of black serving whites in a subsidiary role.
4: They were expected to work hard, 20-hour shifts. Many customers wouldn't even call the porters by their name. They just referred to them as George, after the founder, George Pullman. Calling someone the name of their enslaver was a tradition carried over from slavery.
6: But at the same time, it gave a great source of employment for blacks around the country.
4: The combination of a steady income and the ability to travel around the country was almost unheard of for black people at the time.
6: So the porters have a kind of role as ambassadors of information, right? throughout the United States to black communities. Porters
4: were known for distributing the Chicago Defender, the largest black newspaper at the time, across the country, including to the South, where the paper was banned in some places. The paper helped fuel the great migration out of the South by informing people of opportunities elsewhere.
6: So they're both, they have relatively well-paying jobs, stable jobs. They're moving around the United States and basically communicating to other black communities because they're getting off and sleeping and then getting back on.
4: Because of the hardworking conditions and the systemic racism, in 1925, the Porters announced they wanted to form a union, the first black union in the country called the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. They were based
6: in Chicago. But the vice president, C.L. Dellums, was based in Oakland. So Oakland takes on a very large role within the Brotherhood. It's kind of the the secondary uh, headquarters of the Brotherhood. But the struggle
4: to unionize was a long one. It took 12 years. The Pullman Company fired workers who tried to organize and did everything they could to discourage the union. But in the end, the porters were successful, and Oakland played no
6: small part. The branch that was the most steadfast that had the largest memberships who supported ongoing union efforts was the West was the Oakland branch under C.L. Dellham.
4: The Porters are credited with helping to found the black middle class in America as well as the modern civil rights movement. In 1941, they threaten a march on Washington to protest employment discrimination. This is more than 20 years before the march on Washington, where Martin Luther King makes his I Have a Dream speech. Schwartzer says the community organizing that continues in West Oakland today, groups like Moms for Housing, are part of a legacy started by the Brotherhood.
6: You know, if you look at Oakland's history of civil rights activism, this is really the kind of start, you know. You think about the Occupy movement that happened in the 2010s, And you think back to the Black Panthers in the 1960s and 70s, you know, it all goes back to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters.
4: These railroad jobs were the foundation for a neighborhood of Black-owned businesses, nightclubs, and homes in West Oakland. Alan Laird remembers going to the Porters Union Hall with his father and seeing a flourishing community.
5: So in that community, we had all our own businesses and finances. And uh, I remember my barbershop, Stovall Barbershop, was right there on 7th Street. It was vibrant. It was people walking on both sides of the street, going and coming, with shopping bags and different things.
4: West Oakland and the 16th Street Station were thriving. But all that starts to change in the late 1950s. The construction of the 880 Freeway, and later, the BART Line, demolishes a lot of those West Oakland businesses. And as the economy of West Oakland begins to decline, so does the 16th Street Station. The golden age of railroads comes to an end. Cars and airplanes become more popular, and all those streetcars and suburban trains cease to exist. By the late 80s, just a few trains a day stop at the 16th Street Station. Alan Laird remembers seeing the station in disrepair.
5: When it, when I pass by and it's just a hulk with a million memories, you know, the, the window panes looked as though they had been in steady tears, you know. And I said, won't they notice me? Can't they see me? Don't they know who I was, you know? In
4: 1989, the Loma Prieta earthquake badly damaged the structure of the station, and it was closed. The last train rolled past it in 1994. The station sat vacant and abandoned for 11 years. People squatted in it, covered it in graffiti, and stripped the interior. In 2005, it was bought by Bridge Housing, a nonprofit affordable housing developer. They wanted to turn the station into something the community could use. But like other redevelopment plans in West Oakland… A lot of those plans have been derailed by at least two major recessions during that time. I mean, the dot-com bust was one,
6: then the big recession.
4: That's Jim Mather. chief investment officer for Bridge. I met him outside the station. He says those recessions dried up a lot of the funding that the station needed. And the price tag for the restoration and seismic retrofitting that the station needs is at least $50 million. So the station is in limbo. We're on hold. I mean, it's really trying to find the financing. Any billionaires listing who want a project, here it is.
1: I like to say we're looking for uh, somebody with deep pockets who says this is my legacy to Oakland.
4: <laughs> also here is Frankie Whitman, a consultant for Bridge. We're going to go inside the station for a chance to peek at some history most Oaklanders never get to see. So I brought someone along who knows the station firsthand. All right, all right, all right. Hey, nice to meet you, man. You're not too late? No, you're right on time. All right, okay. Perfect okay. timing. All right. So welcome back. All right, all right. How's it feel to be back? Oh, man, I just got a little chill. <laughs> This is Lamar McDaniel. He started working out of the station in 1973. He's 71 now. He walks a bit slowly, which he credits to working on the railroad.
0: By the time you leave the railroad, walking on the train, serving waiting tables and taking all that rocking and rolling, you would be wild. Oh, feel like you've been in a football game for the last 20 some years.
4: When he started, McDaniel was trained by some of the last of the Pullman Porters to work on the railroads. He started as a waiter and worked his way up.
0: And I was the one that got I, you know, I got taught a lot. That's why I ended up being a maitre d', which was a job that a black guy didn't have during the
4: Pullman days. <laughs> he hasn't been inside since the station was closed. But today, we get to go in. Wow. Oh, yeah. The inside is jaw-dropping. The ceilings are 40 feet high, adorned with intricate plaster work golden light filters in through arched windows. McDaniel remembers some of the same things that made Alan Laird's eyes big as a kid. We used to have a guy over there
0: that was shining shoes. And over in that corner was a snack stand.
4: But the grand clocks and chandeliers that Alan Laird told me about are gone. Something's off.
1: Um, but you could even see here, even though it looks very distressed, it's very evenly distressed.
4: Since Bridge has owned the station, they've rented it out to companies like HBO and Netflix for TV and movies, and those companies have left a lot of their sets behind.
1: The wainscoting, the door treatment, the window treatment, the valances, those are not elevators, because there's no second floor, all movie sets.
4: More than one music video has been filmed here as well. So in the same spot where porters once carried luggage, E-40 told us how to go dumb in the Tell Me When to Go music video.
0: Tell me when to go, tell me when to go. Tell me when they go, tell me when they
4: Mumford & Sons did a video here too, and it's hosted Burning Man-inspired parties. But Bridge can't even do that anymore.
1: This, 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 little, this is new. <laughs> yeah.
4: Back in the main hall, Whitman points to a pile of debris on the floor. Where do you think that fell from? Right up there. Yeah. Wow, so the, the ceiling's like actively crumbling, huh? Yes. It it's another reason we don't have, I mean, it's part of the liability thing, why we're not it having it. Events in here anymore. No hard hats. Huh? We walk out of the main hall through a dark corridor to the old baggage wing.
0: Oh, I'm gonna
4: give my flashlight. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty dark in here. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
4: the baggage wing is thick with history. There's an old scale for weighing luggage and a large rolling door where passengers used to wait for their things. The first elevated tracks west of the Mississippi are directly over our heads. I walk with Lamar over to another room. It's the utility room where the porters would hang out between shifts.
0: Uh, there would be luggage all over the place. Guys would be, when it wasn't a train, to be really be serviced. The Red Caps would just hang out back here and shoot the breeze, tell old jokes, and, All kinds of stuff.
4: Some people want the station turned into a museum for the railroad and the porters. Others want it to be an event space. Jim Mather from Bridge.
0: Whatever happens here, Bridge is going to recognize
4: and honor the history behind this station and its significance to the African-American community of Oakland. Just when the doors of the 16th Street station will reopen again is unclear. To complete the tour, we walk out to the back of the station. Where once there was the shore of the bay, there's the 880 freeway. Instead of trains, semis run in and out of the Port of Oakland. There are no tracks connected to the 16th Street station anymore. They've been dug up and taken away. It's reminiscent of how this station has been disconnected from Oakland, the building neglected, the history obscured. Alan Laird again.
5: It's like losing a friend, you know, but you see the shadow of it right there. And you want to run it and tell people, say, I remember when that was a palace. And that was filled with thriving hearts and minds and souls and energy. And hope was waiting for you as you got off the train.
4: You'll never hear a train pull into 16th Street Station again, but it's still possible the station could have a new beginning just like the people that passed through it all those years ago.
2: That was reporter Azul Dolstrom Ekman. If you want to see some pictures of the 16th Street Station, including some from our tour inside, head to baycurious.org. We'll drop a link in the show notes, too. Special thanks to Otis Taylor, Dan Brecky, and Paul Lancor for their help on this episode. Bay Curious is made by Katrina Schwartz, Sebastian Migno Buccelli, Brendan Willard, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Our show is produced at member-supported KQED in San Francisco. Have a good one.